My name is Justin Blizzard. I am a second year intern here. Um, it is such a pleasure and delight to be with you all tonight. Um, it's truly an honor to stand in front of you. Um, if you have your Bibles or if you're looking at your bulletin, go ahead and turn to Romans 8, 28 through 39. So this semester we've been going through a relationship series, but we're going to do something a little different tonight. We're going to look at Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And so throughout this letter, Paul has been answering questions raised by the Romans concerning the status of God's people now that Christ has come and how his mercy is being played out in the world. And our passage that we're looking at tonight is so much of the so what question of a lot of the letter. And so I encourage you to go read the rest of the letter and figure out what the so what is answering. So if you would look at Romans 8, 28 through 39 with me. This is God's word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. The prophet Isaiah tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade away, but God's word stands forever. Let me pray for us. Father, you are such a good and gracious king. Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you that you've preserved it for us um, to read it tonight. And Lord, I pray that this text and its truths seep deeper into our hearts. Um, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be true and acceptable in your sight. In your son's name, amen. So one of the greatest lyricists of our time is a man named Jason Isbell. Jason is a Southern rock alt-country artist who's famous for songs such as Cover Me Up and If We Were Vampires. And so I'm sorry, Morgan Wallen and Noah Kahn fans, they were just covers. Jason got his start in the music industry at the ages of 22, 23, when he was touring with a band called the Drive-By Truckers. And during this time, Jason began using um, hard drugs and developed alcoholism. A little over 10 years ago, Jason started his long road of of recovery and sobriety, and one of his biggest supporters was his now wife, Amanda Shires. In an interview with NPR, Jason admitted that I would usually drunkenly tell her I needed to go to rehab, and I only got to do that twice until Amanda responded, you're telling the wrong person. Jason's sobriety is marked by his first solo studio album, Southeastern. And on one song, he writes about the fear that his wife, Amanda, will confuse his past self, his drug-abusing, alcoholic self, 
with his current sober self. Listen to these lyrics from Live Oak. He says, there's a man who walks beside me. It is who I used to be. And I wonder if she sees him and confuses him with me. And I wonder who she's pining for on nights I'm not around. Could it be the man who did the things I'm living down? Jason is scared that because of the immense hurt and pain and destruction caused by his alcoholism, that his wife and others will not be able to tell the difference between his new self and his old self. He fears that he is nothing more than the wrong things that he has done. And he's terrified that Amanda will forget who he is. I want to suggest to you tonight that so much of the Christian life is about wrestling with the things that we have done wrong and continue to do wrong. We so often get in our heads that because I've done this wrong thing, there is no way that God can love me. And because I've done that to my friends or to my family, that action is the totality of who I am. We are constantly forgetting who we are in Christ and his love for us. And so what Paul wants us to see in this passage is that if you're in Christ, God is for you and nothing you can do and nothing you have done will separate you from the love of God in Christ. So I want to look at this passage with three points. First, Christ is our justifier. Second, God is for us. And third, therefore, nothing can separate us from Christ's love. So Christ is our justifier. God is for us. Therefore, nothing can separate us from Christ's love. So first, Christ is our justifier. Look at verse 28. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So when the Bible talks about God, it is talking about the one true creator God. God is the one who made the heavens and the earth. Everything we live in and experience is a part of his creation. He governs it, rules over it, and intimately loves it. He is above all things and over all things, and he is the one true God and has always been the one true God. The Bible also tells us that because this, God is ultimately good, and he is the one who gets to dictate right and wrong, and he is the ultimate source of everything that is good. Therefore, what Paul is saying here is that because God is good and is the ultimate source of goodness, he will work all things for the benefit to those whom he has called his own. This means that if you're a Christian, the Lord will bring about ultimate good in your life. Jump down to verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That means his people. It is God who justifies. So in RUF, you're going to hear us talk a lot about this thing called the doctrine of justification. So justification is the Bible's way of saying that if you're in Christ, because of his work on the cross, you have been made right with God. Your sins and all of your wrongdoings have been put on Jesus and all of his good works have been put on you. And you cannot earn justification. It is a gift of grace that God gives you. And it is not based upon your works. It's not based upon who you are and it's not based upon your merits. It is solely based on Christ's work. Justification is also something done to you, not by you. It is an external declaration from God that says, you are in right relationship with me. You are good. You are clean. Think about it like this. So I'm sure by by now, many of you have been to a wedding or you know how a wedding works. So what normally happens at a wedding? The bride and the groom say some vows, some songs are sung, and the minister declares them to be married. Now, when this happens, nothing physically 
changes about them. The bride is still the bride and the groom is still the groom. But their relationship to each other has changed. Now that they have been declared husband and wife, they will forever relate to each other as such. And all of society and culture recognizes them as one family unit. This is the same idea behind justification. While nothing physically changes about you, God's declaration of you are righteous is eternal and is the way that now you and God will relate to each other forever. When you are righteous before God, you are clean. You are without sin. God looks at you and he sees Jesus. But why do we need justification? Why do we need something like this to be in right relationship with God? Well, the Bible's answer to that is sin. Sin is anything we do that goes against God. Um, Excuse me. Sin is anything we do that goes against what God has said to be good. And we sin all the time. The Bible would actually suggest that we can't go three seconds without sinning. I can't stand up here and do this without sinning. And because of sin and sin's infection in our lives, none of us are fundamentally in right relationship with God. Think about it. If God is the ultimate source of all things good and we are constantly not doing good in what he has said to be good, we just can't possibly be in right relationship with him. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to call us evil. That there is nothing we can do, nothing we can say, and nothing that we can think by ourselves that is good. And the Bible doesn't just say this about our bad actions. The Bible says that even the things we try to do for good are tainted and have sin smothered all over it. Isaiah 64, 6 compares all of our works, good and bad, to dirty, filthy rags. Nothing we do by ourselves is good. So if that is true, what is our hope? Look at verse 29. Paul says that for those God has called to himself, he has done so to be conformed to the image of his son, of Jesus. And because nothing we can do is good or is done with good intention, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be our substitution. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He never had bad intentions. So that Jesus' right standing with God can be gifted to us. How? Towards the end of his ministry, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ was betrayed by his people. He was alienated, beaten, broken, stripped naked, and ultimately nailed to a prisoner's cross. And he died. Jesus Christ, God himself in human flesh, died. In another letter, Paul tells us, For our sake, he made him to be sin, Christ, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It comes from 2 Corinthians 5.21. But the beautiful part of the story is that Jesus didn't just die. He rose from the dead and now sits at the Father's right hand in the seat of glory, advocating on your behalf. This means that the man who lived a perfect life is the same one who is constantly advocating for you, praying for you, and telling the Father, that person's awesome. My righteousness, I get to them so they can be in right relationship with me. And this is a lot to take in and a lot to process, but I want us to consider a few pivotal questions with this. What is God like? Why would God do this? What about Christ would make him die for his people? And so that brings us to our second point. God is for us. 
So everything that we just talked about, that's the preliminary stuff that we were talking about um, in the beginning. So now we're moving into the so what of this passage. Look at verses 31 through 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So in this section of our text, Paul takes everything that we just talked about in point one, Christ's life, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, Christ's ascension, justification in Christ, and summarizes it in one phrase in verses 31. God is for us. So how do we know that is true? Look at verse 32. Paul says we know God is for us because God sent his own son to die in our place. And this is not a happy, simple, go-lucky phrase. The Bible and the Christian tradition understands God as a trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons in one essence, distinct from each other in their personhood, but not divided. They are all God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have eternally enjoyed relationship with each other. They have constantly and eternally been loved by each other, loved each other, and poured themselves out for the other's benefit. So what Paul is saying in this passage is that if the father gave up the most precious thing to him to die, Jesus, that there is no good thing that he would withhold from you. He's already given you his everything. He's already given you Jesus on the cross, naked, beaten, and put to death. In this passage, Paul is telling us that if we ever doubt God's goodness, and I have many times this week, and even today, that we should look at Jesus and know that God died for your good and your benefit. And this is truly all-encompassing. Look at the second half of verse 32. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So this is no indication that God is going to give us everything we want. It is a guarantee that God will not withhold anything that we need. Like a good father, God knows us better than we can ever know ourselves. In fact, he actually knows what we need way more than we could ever know. He knows what is good for us and knows what is not good for us. So that means that actually sometimes God withholds things from us that we think are good but are actually not. God may not deliver that job that you've been praying for. God may not give you that specific item on your Christmas list. That would tear me apart. God may not have that person say yes when you ask them out. And it doesn't matter how hard we try or how much we pray or if, how much we try to earn it. God just sometimes withholds things from us because he knows they will not be good for us. In the same way, sometimes God allows terrible things to happen to us. And I, I want to be super careful with this because I don't know everyone's story in this room. And some of y'all come here tonight with really deep wounds um, and maybe from some things you've done. It may be from some things that I've done to you. And some of you may even have trauma. And for that, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry you carry that. And I don't know how, and I don't know when, and I don't know why these things happen. And one of the hard and difficult truths about the Bible is that God will take those things and turn them into good. Look at verse 36. Paul is referencing Psalm 44, 22, when he says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
Paul's usage of this text is to show the Romans that they are not the first of God's people to suffer. To be a child of Christ is to suffer. So much so that we can say to live in Christ is to suffer. And this is not a new reality for God's people. And that's exactly why Paul chooses this text. To re-identify God's people with the suffering of Israel. He's saying, hey, you know all that stuff that you know, like, to a T? All that is continuing. All that is still the same. But the beautiful reality of the Christian life is that we now see that God answers suffering with himself on a cross. The cross is God's eternal declaration that he cares about the suffering of this world and about evil and is willing to die to defeat it. And he's willing to eternally pour himself out for our benefit. So much so that because of Christ's work on the cross that we can say, I don't know why these horrible things are happening to me or have happened to me, but it cannot be because God doesn't love me. He does not minimize your pain and suffering. He actually cares about it way more than you and I ever could. And that's why he answers with himself on the cross to guarantee to us that evil does not go unpunished, to show us that he is not silent about evil and to show us what we actually need is not an objective answer to suffering, but God himself defeating evil on a cross. Other parts of scripture tell us that the Lord actually takes every single tear that we cry, bottles it up and says that I will make it as if this never happened. And I've answered for that evil on the cross. And we need the person of Jesus more than anything else. We need his never ending love. We need his eternal compassion. We need his never ending grace. Why? Because Jesus is the one who we were ultimately made for. To know, to love, to long for, to be loved by. We were made to be in relationship with him and have our entire lives shaped about him. We were made for another, not a husband, not a wife, not a father, mother, brother, sister, girlfriend, boyfriend. God loves those things. He says those things are good and gifts those relationships to us. But ultimately, we were made for Jesus. And if you are in Christ, you are more beloved than you can ever know. And you only need him to make you beloved. So one of my favorite poets and novelists is this guy named Wendell Berry. He is this sweet old man who lives out in Kentucky, owns zero technology, um, and I hope is still blessing the world or in Jesus's arms. Um, And Wendell's collection of Sabbath poems, his last poem goes like this. He said, there is a day when the road neither comes nor goes, and that way is not a way, but a place. That's really short, so I'm going to read it again. It says, there is a day when the road neither comes nor goes, and that way is not a way, but a place. Wendell is saying that there will be a day at the end of everything, at the end of life, at the end of suffering, where we will stumble into a beautiful place that our hearts were made for. And truth be told, Wendell's actually wrong. He's not entirely wrong. He's half wrong. He misses the other half of the point. Because we will not only stumble into a beautiful place that our hearts were made for. If you're in Christ, we will stumble into the arms of the person we were were made for. We will stumble into the arms of Jesus. 
At the end of all time, the Bible tells us that we will be with Christ for all eternity, fully loved by him, fully known by him, and we will know him with no sin and no taint. Why? Because he is a good father who loves to give you good things. And he wants to be with you for all of eternity. He knows your hardship. He knows your struggles. And he wants you to know his precious fatherly embrace. And so that brings us to our last point. Therefore, nothing can separate us from Christ's love. So look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So Paul takes this question and then proceeds to list out a bunch of horrific things that can happen to us. So the pains of this world being mauled down by armies, powers hovering over us, government's corruption, nature itself working against us. Remember Jurassic Park. And how does he answer this question? The question of who shall separate us from the love of Christ. One word summary. Nothing. Nothing. Look at verse 39. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're in Christ, you're a beloved son or daughter of our Lord that he is well pleased with. There's nothing you can do and nothing you can say that Jesus will take and say, no, you are no longer my child. Jesus will never orphan you. Jesus has adopted you into his kingdom of grace and is overwhelmed that you are there. And I'm about to list out a few things and just some application points. And I just want to say on the front end that God calls evil for what it is. Evil. He knows that and he calls it that. And so just keep that in mind as I list out these things. So it does not matter the grades you got this past week. That will not separate you from Christ's love. It does not matter how angry you got with your parents or your friends. It does not matter how many people you've slept with. It does not matter the things you have done on social media that you are ashamed about. It does not matter whether you didn't eat today or you did eat today. It doesn't matter if you hate your body. Christ still loves you. Christ still loves your body. It doesn't matter how overwhelmed you are over the fear of failing in life. Christ still loves you. And again, here, God calls evil for what it is. Evil. It does not matter if someone's touched you or use your body for malicious purposes. Christ still loves you. It does not matter if you said the one thing to the friend that you know was too far and were just at the end of yourself and you just said that. It does not matter if depression has caused you to not be able to get out of bed. Christ still loves you. Christ is for you. And nothing you can do and nothing done to you will separate you from his love. Yes, he calls all of evil for what it is, evil, especially those things that were done to you. Evil is evil. He hates those wrongdoings. But if you are in Christ, his eternal disposition to you is you are mine and I am yours. And I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I love you. 
So there's a story that's been passed around in RUF over the years. And let me give a caveat on the front end. This is not a, hey, look at RUF, look at how great it is. We're not about that. If you ever hear that flavor from us, please come talk to us. We would love to talk about that. Um, That's not anything of what we're about. It is just a story I love. And forgive me if I get emotional at the end. Um, So one old RUF campus minister, when he was in college, he was searching around for a new campus ministry. And so one day he went to a service where the head guy was talking about sex and sexuality. And at the end of the talk, the head guy took a rose and passed it around. And after about the 150th person touched it, grabbed it, and defiled it, the rose got back up to the head guy. And as you probably would expect, this precious and tender flower looked withered and beaten up. I mean, when I was 20 years old, I probably would have taken that thing and just like rubbed it in between my hands. And the head guy took it and he said, when you are a virgin, you are like this rose before it got passed around. Beautiful, pure. When you start sleeping around or making out with people or doing alike, you become like this rose after it got passed around. Defiled, broken, touched all over, disgusting. Who would want that rose? The old RUF campus minister got up as soon as the guy asked that question, and he said, Jesus, Jesus would want that rose. And he's exactly right. Jesus wants every part of you. He wants the good, the bad, and the ugly. He wants the prideful and arrogant parts of you. He wants you even when you don't want yourself or when you don't love yourself. And he loves you enough to cover that. Why? Because he is a good father who loves to give you good things. And he loves you. And nothing you do will disappoint him. And nothing you do will separate you from his love. Friends, I invite you to live into this freedom, knowing that God loves you and is for you. And let us prepare our hearts for when we finally get to meet our maker and hear him say to us, welcome home, child. I love you. Let me pray for us. God, you are such a good father. Lord, you love us. And we thank you so much that you tell us over and over in your word you love us, that you're for us, that you will never leave us or forsake us. Jesus, let that be the heartbeat of our lives. Lord, let that truth sink in deeper and deeper, day in and day out. And Lord, let you become more beautiful to us as that happens. So in your name we pray. Amen.